So you were you were um, in the market to buy a house for a while. Yeah. What was the motivation? Like, what spurred you to suddenly become a home buyer per se? Well, I think looking at it now, I would say that it's um, those were emotional reasons. That's why I was looking to buy a home. Okay. And still am, but at least I've identified it as emotional. Okay. I that really is the primary driving factor. When you say emotional, mm-hmm. what do you mean? What's the what's making it a, an emotional decision versus a pragmatic one? I mean, I haven't been looking at it that way until just in the last couple of days. So it's pretty new for me to think about it that way. But if I look back, because I've been looking for a home for probably about three or four years. Um, so if I look back, it's a sense of just wanting something that's my own because we had this thing happen where we were living um, in a place we really liked. One day the uh, property manager comes over, knocks on the door, just right, what is it, 28 days, 30 days, mandatory, comes over, knocks on the door, and she's like, here you go. I just want to move back in, sorry. And that feeling of just like having someone pull it out from underneath you quickly, you got to move. So I think that was the beginning of it for me was wanting something of my own okay, and having more control. And then I think there's just this nesting thing that happens. You want just something that feels like your own and you can put trees in the ground if you want to, you can paint it whatever color you want. Um, so I think it was more these kinds of reasons. Oh, and also one more thing. All your friends are buying houses, right? Everybody's buying houses. Everybody's got a house. You're like renting. You have to say you're renting. And it has this connotation to it, at least for me. And so I really think those are the biggest driving factors. Underneath it, there's some thought of, well, I'm paying rent every month. That's And you hear it all the time. That's throwing it away. So you're throwing away money. But for me, that wasn't the biggest thing. It was more just wanting something of my own. And that's more emotional than it is financial, I think. So that when you say connotation, meaning like you're not good enough, you're not um, financially mm-hmm. um, capable, you're not keeping up with the Joneses because you're a renter and not a homeowner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think it kind of has that feel about it. Because a lot of people assume if you could buy a house, you would, that you wouldn't choose to rent. You know what they say about the majority and the herd. Yes. It is a lemming mentality. But So the, the, um, that additional narrative of, well, like, like you mentioned, you have everyone else doing it, right? So then you feel the social pressure, mm-hmm. which is a bit of, you know, similar to the connotation you mentioned of, I'm renting, therefore I'm not um, keeping up with my social status at my age. Mm-hmm. And um, but is it is it also just because everyone else is doing it? Yeah, I definitely think there's an element of that. You know, especially when you know in Hawaii, I think it's more common to have people renting. But when you go back to the mainland, all your relatives, all your family, everyone owns these big houses. Um, compared to Hawaii, what you can afford. So it's definitely a feeling of you're living a different lifestyle. And if everyone in your family, your friends is doing this thing, there's a magnetism towards it. 
I wouldn't say that was my biggest draw, but I think it was definitely there. It was under the surface. Now, what about the, the narrative of renting is just throwing money away and paying someone else's mortgage? Have you given much thought to that? I don't feel that way Why anymore. Um, because you're paying someone either way. You're either paying a bank interest or you're paying to have things fixed. I mean, you're paying to live somewhere, no matter what, unless you can buy a house outright. When when did you come to that conclusion or how did you come to that like um, perspective that that's... I started listening to financial podcasts. <laughs> I'm serious, I did. So you became enlightened instead of just... Yeah. yeah. I learned, I mean, I'd never really thought about it that way. And also just leveraging your credit and being able to you know, if you could own something else and someone else was paying your mortgage, um, that that makes more sense. And that kind of blew me away when I really thought about it that way. But the problem is that, you know, the people around me still think that renting is throwing money away. So... Do you feel the need to educate them and, and share them, shine light on your perspective or you just kind of let them have no i still like i still talk to (laughs) i can't be friends with you anymore i know you're not my friend anymore but i have talked to a lot of people about it and um i think there's just this really ingrained mentality that it's still just throwing money away even when you break it down and and talk about interest and um opportunity cost i think there's still just this idea that it's giving someone else money every month. Well, I think it's hard if you're going to have, first of all, you're far more um, converted than I thought you were. I told you you weren't going to like this conversation. (laughs) I'm glad to hear the things that you're saying, but I thought it would be the exact opposite. And I would, you're, you're inadvertently stealing my thunder. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, big moment of of enlightenment. No, this is going to be a good conversation because we can develop some of these things, but you um do you feel yet yeah, i mean it's going to be difficult having that type of conversation with somebody in that position because you're going to deal with things like consistency bias right like if they made a decision which really is based on emotion exactly exactly well, we make deci- or we make purchase decisions based on emotion and then justify with logic yeah, it's cognitive dissonance because the people that I'm talking about own houses. Right, and they've already made these false, um, or they've they've only looked at, you know, the, the information. And honestly, the information doesn't even support that narrative. It's just they've hand-selected bits and interpreted in a way that they want to, mm-hmm. so it supports that decision. Right. Um, so obviously having a conversation with someone who's already in that position isn't going to... Um, you know, look at it from a subjective standpoint. Or it's harder to get them to. Yeah, well, they're not going to admit, you know what, you're making a valid point. I just made a really uh-huh. dumb financial decision. Right. Or let me correct it. Let me change it and go back to renting. Right, which is, I mean, you're completely, that's a whole other emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, so a couple of years ago, you, you jumped on the emotional home buying train, blessing disguise maybe because of the type of product available in Hawaii, the cost yeah. of which it was harder and slower for you to pull the trigger. You've over time developed a more logical and pragmatic perspective of owning a home. Well, yes, but then I put an offer in on a home three days ago. Right. So what, <laughs> <laughs> what was it? At, at, by the way, 
which you may or may not know is at the peak of the market. Yes, I've heard. Very late cycle. I mean, we're, we're probably, it's the middle of August and we're, we're probably, without a, I shouldn't say without a doubt, but we're easily less than 12 months away from an identifiable recession, which, which is two quarters of negative GDP growth. But no matter how you look at it from a um, economic standpoint, various uh, data points, you know, things are not, we're not in a healthy place. Mm-mm. So you've waited, and this, this is very typical of inexperienced and um, no offense, but in, in, in the world of finance, the average person is usually referred to as dumb money. So the dumb mm-hmm. money usually runs into the, they run into the burning building, right? Well, so what motivated, I mean, you're not, you're no fool. You, you don't, your life work isn't finance, but you're not oblivious to some of these elements no. like cycles and whatnot. So what motivated, motivated you to. So I wasn't planning on putting an offer on a home, <laughs> Um, especially because I just signed another six month lease for my rental and I heard all these things about upcoming recession, but I was just on Zillow and it wasn't even an area I'd been looking in. It was back in Kailua and this house popped up that had everything that I wanted. And it was actually within my price range. And I hadn't seen a house like that in four or five years. So I thought about it and it was an emotional decision. It wasn't logical at all. It was, you know, I want this house. It's beautiful. I don't care what it costs. I want it. I'm going to live in it forever. And who cares what it costs if I'm going to stay in it? Um, which, well, that's, that's that, emotional. Yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah. It's, it's capital, which means there's opportunity cost. You're missing out on other investments that may have compounding interest or... If your values are money, but if you just want this house and you want to live in it and you can afford it. Well, I think everybody's values to some extent should include financially sound decisions because otherwise you can't really live up to those values when you're struggling to. I mean, I could afford it. It would have been easy to afford. And so for me, no, no, there are definitely other opportunities I could have chosen that Mm -hmm. I think would make more money. But it wouldn't have taken away from anything else I was doing. So it made a lot of sense for that. But yeah, I mean, it was not a logical decision if you look at it from a money standpoint, if that's your goal. It was a, I want a home and this home fits what I want. And I don't care what it costs. Which, yeah, I mean, it's not, I guess I don't like the idea of not making that decision being pegged as like this, um, I'm motivated by money. Therefore I decided not to do it. I think my point is not like, um, that it's, you're either motivated by money or not. And if you're not, then go ahead and, and make mm-hmm. an unsound financial decision. I think it's more a matter of just thinking and looking long-term mm-hmm. like down the road, you're not going to be producing the same amount of income that you're producing today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a factor that I think people need to really look at legitimately, especially when you consider the total lack of savings. Um, you're like, what are you talking about? I have tremendous savings. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't know who I'm talking to, this individual is definitely someone who has their shit together. So a lot of people, perhaps, perhaps a lot of people don't have um, the discipline to actually even put anything aside. Mm-hmm. Um, and those who have, for me, the motivation 
um, when having these types of conversations, I, I think it's a discipline that should be rewarded, not by making an all of a sudden mm-hmm. consumption yeah. decision, yeah. but one that should then be rewarded long term with ongoing interest and capital gains. Mm-hmm. It's a hard balance, though, because then you sacrifice things like. Like what? Your own. This plant in your backyard, mm-hmm. your own papaya tree. <laughs> Those are very important mm-hmm. and avocados and stuff. I sympathize for you deeply, but it, I mean, it is a, it is a sacrifice to some extent. I mean, if you're looking at a property that you really, really want to live in in an area you really want to live and it pops up, um, you do have to put that aside, that emotion of that's where I want to live. That's the house I want to live in. I could afford it right now um oh and the reason by the way it didn't work out is because somebody offered over asking price for it so that's how crazy it is you know so i mean i guess maybe it was a blessing in disguise but yeah i think you really have to put your emotions aside if you're going to make those kinds of decisions so then what do you think you're is that it then? So you go back to the, the reality of like, whoo, I'm glad that emotional experience is over. And now I believe that buying a house doesn't make financial sense. So I'm no longer in the market. Wow. In fact, that's what I was going to ask you about when I said I wanted to pick your brain. Because now I'm on this sort of like fence where part of me just wants that, you know, a place of my own where no landlord can come by and tell me that I have to move. Um, all those things I told you about. Or... I could invest in something somewhere else, um, probably not Hawaii, and have a revenue stream. But then I'm still renting and in an area I don't really want to be. Um, you like where you are. It's just not conducive to some of the other aspects of... Yeah. I mean, it's not really where I want to stay. Um, and to live in a rental in the area I want to be in is, you know, we're talking about that single wall construction, cockroach-ridden... <laughs> Well, everywhere in Hawaii is cockroaches. Ah, uh, the sacrifices so, we make yeah. to live in paradise. Yes. But yeah, so it's, a, you know, it's, it feels like delayed gratification, even though I think, like you put it, it'd be a more sound financial decision. Sound to an extent. I mean, just saving your money is not um, necessarily going to be the end, end goal. Um, you're not going to live off of savings. Um, I think, so are you asking me a question then at this point? Mm -hmm. What are you asking me? What should I do? Tell me everything. (laughs) (laughs) I suddenly have, um, my, my mind becomes full of the scene in Goonies when he's like, um, they have chunk, the, (laughs) the fatellas or whatever they're, the bad guys. Yeah. And they've got him in the basement and they're like, Tell us everything. <laughs> and his hands in the blender. He's like, the one time I made the bar, the puking noise, blah. And everyone started throwing up on each other. And the one guy's like, Such a good scene. Yeah, I really like this kid. <laughs> What's that thing you did with his stomach? The truffle shuffle. Yes. Yeah. Chunk. That's, I'm sorry if you feel like Chunk. I didn't mean to make you feel that way. Tell me everything. No, he says, spill your guts. Yeah, that's right. Spill your guts, kid. Like, no, he does say everything. He's like, everything? <laughs> everything. <laughs> this one time? <laughs> so, um, 
there's many layers to to the conversation or there's there's the the conversation could go many layers deep but i think the the surface of it to me is is very very simple and it is you are either and this is mathematically supported and it seems like you kind of already have figured that out on your own or at least to some extent from a distance can see that there's uh, more emotion to the decision than than mm-hmm. mathematics but you're either at the end of the day you're either renting a home from a landlord or you're renting the money from a bank mm-hmm. and I'll develop that further in a second but the the really the core premise is um, cash flow is king so if you don't have passive income stream if the property is not producing income it's a liability it is not an asset um, and any justification for acquiring a liability is pure emotion. You're going to go buy a car and you're going to go buy the fancy car. Every justification for that primarily would be emotion. Unless you're in a field where showing up in a reasonably priced car um, may have an impact on your, your position or your business, it's really just transportation. It's the same thing. It's just shelter. And that really screws with people for the reason that you mentioned, because they've either made this decision emotionally and they want to reinforce it mm-hmm. um, with emotional logic, um, or they're trying to find that that justification to support the logic to make the decision in the first place. And they've got some story of, of how the landlord knocked on the door and gave us our 30 days and this was our dream home. And It did feel pretty crappy though. I get it. I've been there too. Um, but you know, you shift your perspective. I mean, one of the powers of renting is mobility for every time that that mm-hmm. has happened to you, which it sounds like hypothetically speaking, maybe once, how many times have you been able to say, hi, landlord, here's my 30 day notice. I'm out. That's true. And you don't have that flexibility with real estate. Um, and this perceived narrative that, you know, home values or home prices only go up, give that false sense of like, when it's time to sell, I'm just going to sell and everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, it's, if it's not producing income, it's a liability and you, you can't make an argument against it because there is, there isn't one. Um, and oftentimes, and the one I hear most frequently from real estate professionals, which drives me bonkers, is you're building equity. You know, like, oh, you're throwing your money away on rent, buy a house and build equity. Um, and one of the arguments for that is, okay, you buy a house for $500,000 and five years later, it's worth $600,000. What you're comparing is the nominal price. It's the sticker price. Is not adjusted for inflation, and therefore it's giving you this false sense of, um, you know, what is oftentimes referred to as the wealth effect. Like, oh, now I have, I'm, I'm a richer person because I I bought this house. Mm-hmm. When when you really look at prices over time, and one of the longest running housing indexes um, is called the Herdenbrock Index. And it looks at this area that has sustained its value in the community, in the area. It's, a, it's been a valuable area as long as it's existed. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in Amsterdam. And they, it's the longest running housing de- index, which is over 350 years. And so they looked at home prices over that period of time. And obviously, from a nominal standpoint, 
whatever silly small number you paid 300 years ago compared mm-hmm. to what you would pay today seems like there's this tremendous gain. But when adjusted for inflation, I think the appreciation is like 0.2. So zero. Basically, there's been no appreciation at all. So what real estate ultimately becomes is a good store of value. A good what? Store of value. So you're going to get out what what you basically originally put in. But at the end of the day, if you take into all the things like mortgage interest, taxes, maintenance, still just a massive expense. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back a step and looking at this idea of you are either renting from a landlord or property owner or you're, you're renting the money from the bank. If you, if you look at it from a standpoint of, you know, taking that illusion of appreciation, that capital gains, and understanding that all that really is, is appreciation. So all you're really getting is the illusion of, of a wealth effect when really what is happening to the price of the home is happening to the price of gasoline. It's happening to the price of milk. So your dollar value is being eroded the same. So again, it's acting more as a store of value. Um, And at the end of the day, if you don't have a certain amount of appreciation over your cost of interest, all you're really doing is renting the house from the bank. So I'll give you an example. Let's say your mortgage is 4%. So if home values are only running at an annual appreciation of 4%, which is nonsense as well. It acts as if things are just linear. Mm -hmm. Um, But if that were the case, you would merely be keeping up, the pace of appreciation would merely be keeping up with your cost of interest. So at that point, you're really not going anywhere. You're just treading water. Now, let's say you actually outpace the cost of interest on appreciation. So you've at least recouped your cost or at least your cost of interest is at this point, you're no longer just treading water. You're at least seeing some capital gains. Now let's say that capital gains, let's say appreciation is gaining at 5% a year. Your interest cost is 4% a year. So you're really outrunning your, your cost of renting that home from the bank by 1%. And here's the kicker. At some point, are you using that as emotional justification for why it's a good idea? Or is that something that you are going to cash in on in the future? Well, if you're going to sell a property and go through the traditional route of using, you know, a real estate agent, a listing agent, um, and even if you don't, you're still going to have a buyer's agent that's going to come in and expect, you know, commission for bringing the buyer. But typically as a seller, you're going to pay both sides. Those commissions are going to run between four to 6%. So on the high end, let's say 6%, because in most cases, that's what it is. So unless you've been outpacing your cost of interest by, like I said, the 1%, for example, if you've been doing that consistently for six years, when you go to sell your house, you're merely going to break even because all that capital gains that you, in theory, have achieved through inflation, through appreciation, you're going to be giving up when you sell the house because you've got to pay those commissions. Now, everybody will say, yeah, but this is my forever home. The number of times, yeah, you chuckle because the number of times... No, I'm chuckling because I said it, sort yeah, of. Yeah, the number of times I've heard that nonsense. So there's, 
in the United States, most people are financing their purchase with a 30-year mortgage. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that the finance mechanisms that are in play in, in the United States mortgage market, but pretty much every mortgage is part of a securitization. So the loan gets underwritten and financed as part of a generic set of guidelines that fits into a certain type of box so that that loan can then be packaged and securitized, often in some form of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac mortgage-backed security. And um, those, um, those mortgages are then they're not oftentimes when people will be paying their mortgage to one company and then all of a sudden they're paying it to somebody else. And suddenly they're like, Oh, my loan was sold mm -hmm. or such and such company now owns my mortgage. Mm -hmm. No. Once your mortgage becomes securitized, it's basically part of the security permanently. What is changing is the entity that has the rights to collect the mortgage payments or, or basically the servicing rights. So they're, they're now servicing your loan. They pay the investors of that security a flat percentage, and there's a margin that they collect over top of that. So for example, the typically the way it works is, let's say your mortgage is four and a half percent. Most likely they're paying the investor base or the into security at 4%. So that servicer is collecting a half percent every month. Um, investors who are buying into these mortgage-backed securities for whatever interest that they're buying into them for are not expecting you to be, they're not expecting their money to be locked up in this security for 30 years. The average duration of a mortgage is five to seven years. And obviously you can be refinancing as part of a way to pay off that mortgage. Um, but you know, the way people are in and out of properties typically falls in that same time frame. So this idea that this is my forever home is a narrative that died a long time ago. Like people just aren't staying in their home for that long. So you really got to stop, you know, we're talking about whether it's an emotional or pragmatic decision. You really got to stop for a second when you're all, this is my forever home and really step back and be like, is this really going to be my forever home? Um, and at the end of the day, even if you, if it, you can write a, a dissertation on why it's going to be a forever home. You still have to admit to yourself that you're just making an emotional purchase. It's a liability. It's not an asset. Any capital gains that you see that aren't forced appreciation, meaning you didn't renovate or improve it, at the end of the day, is just inflation, right? So you're really just creating a store of value. And if that's all you want to achieve, just go buy gold. Um, but you're creating a store of value that has maintenance costs. So it's still a liability. So if, if that is the dream, to own this home with the white picket fence, wherever it is, whatever it is, what people are doing wrong, in my opinion, is that they are unable to delay satisfaction and they're unwilling to put the plan in place so they can have the best of both worlds. And again, it's a very simple concept. If it's not producing income, then it's a liability. It's not an asset. So the solution is... And you can, you can find cash flow in any market. So do you need to be careful and concerned that cyclically speaking and from a fundamental standpoint, all these other economic indicators were very late in the cycle and there's probably some bad shit coming down the pipe? Yeah, you need to be concerned with that, but there's still opportunity out there. The focal point just needs to be on cash flow. So if you go and, and take your investment capital, instead of buying a home, you go buy an investment property. And you go, same parameters, let's say it's a $500,000 property, whatever. That 
gain or that appreciation is very, very different because if that property is purchased, a renter is put in place or a number of renters and it's cash flowing, you now have somebody else paying down that mortgage. So now you legitimately are developing equity. Otherwise, all you're doing is locking up your savings and a liability. So as you're paying down debt, yeah, you're, you're creating this idea of equity, which is really just your money locked up in, an, in a very, very illiquid asset. The only way you're going to get your money out of that property is, A, if you sell. We've already talked about, to some extent, some of the costly impact that comes with that. Or you're going to do a refinance. And if you do a refinance to take your money out, all you're doing is creating more debt, more interest costs, more liability. So what you're really doing is, when you're developing equity in a primary residence, that's money that, for example, you have put aside as savings. Mm-hmm. So all you've done is you've pulled forward consumption by getting credit, and now all you're doing is putting your savings into something that's paying down that credit. Mm-hmm. That dynamic changes completely when you buy an investment property that is cash flowing. Because now somebody else's capital, somebody else's money is paying down that balance. So you truly are developing equity. You now you now have this wealth that's it's still locked up in a property but someone else has created that for you and in the meantime they're also creating for you a passive income stream so now you're starting to develop this early stage financial freedom right if suddenly you get hurt and you can't work and you have a house and a mortgage that's trouble and i always tell people the simplest way to, to look at it is an asset feeds you a liability eats you so in that example if something happens that liability is going to eat you alive until you're in default, foreclosure, et cetera. But an asset's going to feed you if suddenly you're hurt. That check, in theory, is going to keep coming in um, as your tenants are both paying down your mortgage, creating true equity, and putting cash flow in your pocket. At a certain point, if you do that efficiently and scale it, you buy multiple properties. Mm-hmm. Now you have a passive income stream that can pay for whatever emotional purchase you want without it impacting your balance sheet. And the other thing to keep in mind is this idea of debt versus leverage. And this is really just kind of a personal way of defining the two. It's not like this is some sort of Webster definition. But debt to me is is just, just like we've been talking about. It's a liability. It's something that every month is eating you alive. Mm-hmm. where to me, leverage gives you the opportunity to, to scale your asset growth. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, for me, it's does it produce more income? Is it produce more liability? Does it produce more income? If it's producing more income, to me, it's leverage. So if you've got this investment property, and let's say over a number of years, people, you've got tenants and they're paying down the mortgage, and then you see an opportunity to acquire another cash-flowing property, now you can tap into that equity in your investment property. You can do a cash out refinance, pull equity from that property, now put a down payment on another. Mm-hmm. And now you're, you're across two assets where there's two, two, you know, both of those assets are being paid down by other people. You've increased your cash flow. And from the initial cap, capital that you invested, your, your ROI on that money is now increasing. Where if you just went out and bought a house, there is no ROI on that. Between maintenance, taxes, and everything else, it's it's literally an expense. So I think the this I don't know if if people feel like they they can't do it. 
Um, I don't buy that. I just feel like most people, um, given your example, I feel like one day they wake up and it's just time to buy a house. And this, ha- this is so, there's so many people that, that they're called, um, um, opportunity entrepreneur. So, so basically people in the real estate business, they're like there to feed on that emotion. Right. Right. And the narrative is so prevailing because there's so much money being made in the business. You've got every way you turn, there's somebody who's in the finance business or in the real estate sales business. If it's time to sell, Oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm your agent, right? Mm -hmm. I can sell for you. Oh, it's a great time to buy. It's always one or the other in, in their world, depending on who you are as a prospect, but you can't have both. It can't be always a great time to buy, a great time to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, I also often see in that in that space where when it's a down market, they're very quick to refer to cyclicals. Like, oh, well, it's a cyclical market. Now's a great time to buy, buy the dip. But we're at the peak of the cycle. No one's saying, hey, be cautious of the peak. Now's a good time to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of pressure socially, but there's also a lot of pressure from what the community perceives are experts right. when they're really not experts. What all, yeah, yeah they, they took a, a short class and they'll have a license to sell, but they don't necessarily, um, understand the history. They don't understand some of these financial truths. And for me, the big thing is in many cases, they're just trying to finance the same emotional dream, right? Like, they want the house. There's a lot of money to be made in this industry. Let's get people buying into the same dream. It's it, To me, the real estate business feels a lot like multi-level marketing. Like everyone's kind of bought into the same Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. And the only way it keeps working is if home values just keep going up. And unfortunately, the only way our economy keeps working is if there's perpetual credit growth which can't happen. And a lot of people don't understand that either is that we are a credit-based economy. Fiat money is actually debt. And if you don't have constant credit growth, then eventually you have a contraction of the money supply, which is a big trigger for recession. And so this idea that you just buy real estate and wait, um, if there's any mission I'm on, it's to completely call that bullshit out because what you do is you buy real estate that produces income and wait. And if at the end of the day, there's some real justifiable capital appreciation that in some form or another has outrun inflation, then great. Pat, pat yourself on the back. That's the cherry on top. But what you're really looking for is someone else to pay down your debt while producing cash flow or putting income in your pocket. Without that, anything else is emotional. Anything else is a liability. And as far as I'm concerned, you're shooting yourself in the foot from what everybody deserves, which is long-term financial stability and wealth. So in the long run, are you saying that a person should just continue renting? Yes. And indefinitely, forever? I think, no, you do what's, you know, not indefinitely. Let's say there's this... um, white picket fence dream Mm -hmm. that you and many other people have. It's this um, inability to delay satisfaction. And it's this silly illusion that that's the house. This is my dream home. Mm -hmm. Like what I propose, what I think would be really interesting is if there was ever some sort of loss or financial correction or, or, 
the expectation of what real estate apparently does in terms of capital appreciation and build equity. I think anybody who's pushing that narrative, you know, in the real estate industry, you're supposed to be a fiduciary, right? But no one's a fiduciary. No one has any real financial responsibility if someone makes a dumb purchase. It's sales. It's commission-based and it's transactional. So if someone makes a dumb decision and that blows up in their face, the person who's the party to the transaction, the real estate agent or anyone else involved in that has no liability. I think if you change that dynamic, the narrative would change very, very quickly. But it's for me, it's just a matter of delaying satisfaction and thinking about how do you achieve that end goal? Do you want, do you want to live this certain type of lifestyle? Forget the house that today, for whatever reason, you saw on Zillow and think is your dream home because that house is going to come around again in the future. And many times what I think is so hysterical about this, we're not talking about some house that's sitting on the cliffside in this very unique view with some like oasis natural waterfall in the backyard. <laughs> we're talking about like a, a planned urban development, cookie cutter home, little box next to little box next to little, stop it. Stop, like if that's your dream, like someone needs to wake you up because that is just silly. You just, I think everyone deserves more than just like, their own renovated kitchen. Mm -hmm. Come on. Mm -hmm. So no, I'm not proposing you rent for the rest of your life. But what I will say in, 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 you know, in its very simplest form is rent where you want to live or live where you want to live in any capacity. Invest where it makes sense. I think Hawaii is a really tough place for people to kind of get their head around this because you can't cash flow here. And yeah. even if you find a property that does your cap rate's less than 3%. And so, but I still say like, okay, go find another market. And the barriers to making that happen aren't that complicated. Yeah, it's a lot more difficult than hopping in the car with some real estate agent and get driving around and putting offers on a bunch of homes and, and just being done with it and pretending like you're, you know, smart home buyer. No, it takes a little bit more research and investigating markets that produce a higher rate on return. And um, yeah, you might have to get a property manager. And mm -hmm. those are all things that come into play. But if you structure the deal right and price it right, you're, you still have an asset versus, you know, throwing in the towel because there's a little bit of research and work and acquiring a liability. So ultimately, if you wanted to say, build your dream home, let's say, and that was something you always wanted to do. The best scenario would be to have this passive cash flow until you could afford to build this just in cash and not take out a loan. Well, no, because I still think that's a great question. Because a lot of there's there's I think there's there seems to be two different opinions on that. Mm -hmm. I think the people who have the opinion that you you pay cash for it have had some bad experience with debt or credit in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I think you always leverage because your, your money goes further. Mm -hmm. um, again, I use leverage, not debt. Um, now, if you're gonna go build a house, that's gonna be debt, right? That's a, it's a liability. But if you've built a portfolio of assets that's paying for it, you've got $4,000 of cash flow coming in and you're gonna go buy your dream home or build your dream home and the mortgage is gonna be three grand, you've done it, right? That doesn't cost you anything. Other people are literally paying right. for your dream. And, and this isn't like, you don't need to understand how to, you know, short 
stocks or understand the derivatives market um, and play in the world's biggest financial casino. No, it's not. It's, I mean, really hitting high level cap rates and, and, um, you know, getting really good internal rates of return or return on investment comes with experience, but the math is, is pretty simple. So what do you think of these turnkey operations? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you can, they have these companies where you can buy 10 houses, let's say for a hundred thousand each and they set it all up. They find them for you. They remodel them. If they need that, they find a renter for you. And, you know, I have a friend who works with one that's in Missouri and Florida college towns. So they build this portfolio of homes that way. Have you heard of these companies? Yeah. 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 Um, it's better than buying a liability. So you, you, again, there's a, there's an opportunity cost there, right? Like what is your time worth? What is your capacity? Like there's probably, you know, someone might listen to this and be like, Oh, you don't understand. I have three kids and they have soccer practice and this and that. And I right. Go, right. Okay. So maybe, first of all, I call bullshit to that because how much of your time is on social media, Facebook, TV, you've got time to look at, even if you spent 30 minutes, an hour a night, mm-hmm. right? That's five hours of researching properties. Mm-hmm. And, and if not researching the process, so when you do find a property, you understand kind of what you're going to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's just patience, right? But maybe all those factors and you're intimidated. Okay, so you, you go through a more turnkey process. And because of that, there's a little bit off the top that you lose. Yeah. I still think you're, you're, you're taking the right first step, right? It's, I think also to that extent, to that point, people always want to hit a home run. That's why you have things like Bitcoin go from 5,000 to Mm 20,000. And then people basically get financially destroyed because they're uneducated. They're, they're emotionally chasing something. They don't understand bubbles. They don't understand, you know, the history of markets. And anyone who, you know, really takes a step back from, from that, for example, would know better. Be like, this isn't, I don't understand it. I don't know the technology. Why is this worth, why is this valued at this? Mm -hmm. But everybody wants the quick fix. And oftentimes buying the house is a quick fix for the current pain point, which is I'm so tired of my landlord or my landlord doesn't fix anything or and obviously, I'm I'm speaking from just a very Hawaii narrative. Oh yeah. But I think that pervades in a lot of part of the lots of many parts of the of the country, where people have similar experiences of frustration mm-hmm. because they don't control their environment. You don't really control your environment at the end of the day, anyway, right? And depending where you're buying, you're going to have an association. Um, you can't control your neighbors. Uh, there's a lot of factors there that I think people again, tell themselves everything is going to be, you know, peachy keen and white picket Mm -hmm. fence. Yeah. And that's not the case. And and it's it's important to understand that real estate is the most illiquid investment. To transact in real estate takes 30 to 45 days. It's, it's, it's not something you want to be in at the wrong time. You can't liquidate it quickly. Um, It's, it fluctuates heavily based on the cost of credit because it's very debt driven. Um, and sometimes those are positives. But again, I say, look, you live where you want to live. Investment opportunities, I think Hawaii is in a major 
housing bubble, especially downtown Honolulu. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the key components to look at is um, price to rent ratios. And they're completely out of control. Historically, a stable ratio is 20 to one. Mm-hmm. And I mean, parts of Hawaii were 70 to one. Um, and this nonsense of, well, it's Hawaii. Just stop. If you've said that to anybody and you're listening, just stop saying that because it has nothing to do with that. Like God's not making any more Hawaii is nonsense. It's purely credit driven, speculative, speculative driven and emotionally driven. And really at the core of that is, is the credit base. You watch how quick the economy here in Hawaii crumbles when the credit markets freeze up again and they will. And the next time might be way worse than, than 2008. Mm-hmm. You you won't you won't be able to give away a home, yeah. Because no one will have the income, no one will have the down payment, and no one would be able to get the qualify for the credit because there would be none to to buy the house. Yeah. And so I think we're going to have another pop here in Hawaii. I don't I don't think you're going to see you know in the next year or so um, home prices just suddenly fall off because interest rates are going to go to zero. And I'm not talking about what the Fed does with the Fed fund rate. I'm talking about mortgage rates. And mortgage rates are not connected to what the Fed does. There's a relationship there, but mortgage interest rates are based on bond yields, mortgage bond market. And so when investors are willing to pay at any given moment for mortgage securities, what really drives the cost of mortgages and how low interest rates go or how affordable low interest rates are. Um, And in, in this environment, Investors are concerned, so they're hedging in the bond market. They're moving to a more risk-off mentality where they're trying to avoid um, risk in places like equities in the stock market. And that's why you're seeing interest rates on on mortgages decline over the past six months because smart money knows what's coming. So they're hedging in the bond market. And that's going to continue. And I think you see interest rates on mortgages continue to plummet. I was talking about this two years ago. I was writing articles and market updates when everyone was saying interest rates were going to go to the moon. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not like I'm looking at a crystal ball. I mean, there's a lot of easily identifiable fundamental aspects for why that was clearly on the horizon. And now that we're here, this is just the beginning as far as, you know, future the risk of, of what is going to come and concern about the future outlook. And investors piling into the bond market. When you have over 16 trillion of negative yielding interest rates, excuse me, negative yielding bonds in the world right now, that means there's over 16 trillion dollars of money invested in bonds that actually promise and guarantee a negative return. So, and majority of these are, are government bonds. So you're giving a dollar to a government, like in Germany, the 10-year yield on the German Bund which is like the equivalent of the 10-year treasury bill, is negative 0.7. So you give a dollar to the German government, 10 years later, they give you 30 cents. That's the absurdity of the world that we're in right now. But that is a reflection of how nervous the market is. Mm-hmm. Right? Perfectly timed that we have sirens and we talk about the end of the world. I wonder what's going on down there. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's a fact that I think that will continue in the U.S. as the reserve currency um, is kind of considered the cleanest, dirty shirt. So if you're looking at investing in, for goodness sake, Italian tenure, um, which is basically a bankrupt country, 
where it doesn't even have its own sovereign currency. It's part of the EU um, uses the euro. And you're looking at that whole geopolitical nightmare and everything that's going on financially there, countries like Spain, and you look at the what's considered the, the epicenter, the stable, um, the rock, the economic rock, which is Germany. And, you know, they're going to be um, heavily impacted by anything that goes haywire there. So, and you're paying a negative yield to their government. Or you could go to the U.S. And U.S. has its own fiscal issues. But, you know, the 10 years at like one and a half percent. What do you want? Negative 0.7 or positive one and a half. There's these different factors that come into play if you're actually someone in Europe, um, you know, some of the, the, the currency impact and whatnot. But there's argument that the dollar and the euro will go to parity and eventually the dollar will actually be stronger than the, the euro. But without going down a, a rabbit hole in that, the point simply is I think you're going to see more and more money flood to the U.S. bond market, not only because it's the cleanest dirty shirt, but because you're actually going to be given a positive return. And that I, I could see that eventually getting, you know, pushed down to almost nothing as well. So that's when I say when rates are going to zero, I'm not talking about what the Fed is going to do with the Fed funds. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about what the bond market is going to do preemptively to protect itself or what investors are going to do in the bond market to protect themselves. That could ultimately result um, in a rush to, to buy bonds and hedge in the bond market, which will push rates to damn near nothing. Most people don't know what that dynamic is. Most people don't know, oh my God, how interest rates are lower. Yeah, two years ago, I was telling you this was going to happen. And now we're here. Still, most people don't understand why. And they think this is an opportunity to rush into the burning building and buy a house because rates are low again. And definitely, that was part of why. You know, I wanted to buy this house is when I looked at the, the sheet and I saw 3.5. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to balance that emotional aspect to just the logical fiscal aspect of it. You know, I think what you say makes sense, but you have to have both so that you can still save and have passive income. But that if you want to build your house someday, that you can still do that just in a way where it doesn't risk. If you got sick or something happened to you, like you said, I mean, it makes sense, but I still want both. I don't want just one or the other. I want want that for everybody. Mm -hmm. I truly do. For me, I'm, I'm very passionate about it because access to the wrong information is far too available. And the majority of the country has the wrong information. And again, this, I, I'm, not, I'm not, you shouldn't hear this or, or look at me and look at me like I have three heads. I think it's really, really basic, fundamental stuff. If it's not producing income, it's a liability. End of story. So you're you're going to go, don't give me this. You're building equity because you're not. You're paying down debt that otherwise would have been savings that you would have put aside, that you actually could have put to use to produce a return. So all you're doing, your equity that you're building is paying down debt. Anything outside of that is appreciate that unforced appreciation is really just a resemblance or reflection of inflation which finds itself in every part of the economy. So to some extent, a home can be seen as a store of value, but when you look at all the maintenance and ownership costs, it's still a liability. So yeah, go ahead and, and 
get the liability. You know, the billionaire can go buy the Ducati and the Maserati and the Lamborghini and the G5 because he's got the assets that pay for it. Mm -hmm. And this is like, I mean, come on, this is Rich Dad, Poor Dad 101. (laughs) Yet how many people have listened to that, read that, yet don't live by it or don't understand? I think everyone understands it. They just ignore it. Yeah, I mean, we're surrounded by pressures and things in our face that, you know, day in and day out, you forget. Or it doesn't apply to you. It feels like it doesn't apply to you. Like you said, you know, it feels like you don't have time. Um, That's for somebody else to go invest out of state and do all that research. And I've been thinking about doing it and I've been looking. I mean, I have houses saved in other places, um, not in Hawaii. But it does. It feels like more work and more effort, more time. I know. But it's not that I don't think about it. And I am somebody who had that knowledge because I was listening to these podcasts. I mean, before I heard anything that you had said, um, I already knew all about that, but I almost put in an offer last week. You know, it's, what's interesting is I have a lot, of, a lot of clients I've worked with over the years. And the majority of what I do is refinance because um, I understand there's this prevailing narrative. And it's like saying what I'm saying in most cases is like trying to s- swim upstream. You know, they're just not going to hear it or listen because they've already kind of had their focus in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And it becomes a very exhausting effort. Like, I don't want to convert someone from their religion, right? You know, I'm the guy on the corner street handing out pamphlets. You know, if you want to come to my church, please come. But if you're already committed, you know, do your thing. Um, I'm not going to participate in it. I'm not going to assist you in making a bad financial decision so I can make a buck. I'm just not going to do it. But I have a very lucrative business helping fix the damage other people have done. And when I have conversations with those clients I've had for years and they're thinking about quote unquote upgrading, which is really just taking on more debt. Mm -hmm. um, And I start to put some of this on the table it's a timing thing. Like right now, the last year or so, as I have these types of conversations, as I've typically have always had when the opportunity comes up with my clients, they're so much more receptive right now because there's just a natural sense. You you can, Hawaii, and anyone who listens to this, we're talking about Hawaii. Hawaii is its, its own animal, but it's so bloody unaffordable here mm-hmm. that it shakes you a little bit when you're like, I'm going to go pay $700,000 for something that should basically be bulldozed. <laughs> and it should be, actually. Most yeah. of the times it is. Most of the times it should be. Yeah. And yeah, most of the time <laughs> it is. So you've been $700,000 for... A, and it actually costs you more to bulldoze it. You're right. So it's. I think people are just kind of like at a point now when they look around and are like, this is fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. And, and it's late cycle and there's a bit of nervousness. Like there's just... It's like the animal sensing danger, right? Mm-hmm. Like people are starting to like, okay, this is a little silly. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I start to have these conversations, it's kind of like the voice that's been buried so deep in the back of their head by all this resounding emotion that gets reinforced by everyone else who's in the Ponzi, right? That suddenly that voice now has a place to kind of But then when you say that, you say it's getting a little bit silly. I mean, there's always that backlash of, yeah, but everyone said that in 1995. Oh, my God, you're going to pay 400000 for a house in Lanikai? And look at them now. So you hear 
you know, it's yeah. always sounded silly in Hawaii, True, but I hear what you're saying. Because they're looking at nominal prices. They're not looking at real prices. So nominal is kind of like I referenced before. It's the sticker on the window, mm-hmm. right? Real is what the price is adjusted for inflation. I think one of the best examples of understanding nominal versus real is when you look at interest rates. Mm-hmm. So if you have a rate of return of 5%, an interest rate of 5%, but inflation is running at 2%, your real return or the real interest is 3%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is why I referenced the Herringrock Index. This isn't just me spouting right. off on my opinion. You have a 350-year index, the longest-running index right now that there is, that clearly shows, and you're not talking an area that used to be slums that's now posh. Like this has always been this very sought after um, ideal location and there's been zero appreciation over time. And I, I think that's, if nothing else, just let that sink in. Right, I know there's, well, that's not this. Just stop because that's an emotional response. If you're going to respond in that way, check yourself and ask, am I responding this way because that's a logical thing and maybe I didn't make a logical decision. This is bothering me. Or go do your research. Go build your own index for Kailua, Hawaii and adjust it for inflation before you make a decision. But it's to me, that's the same laziness <clears throat> that you know comes to play when people are like, oh, I don't, I'm not going to buy a home in Seattle because I don't have time to research it. Yeah. Nonsense. You do. And there's other ways that you can invest in cash flowing properties. There's syndication. Um, I don't really recommend it, but there's similar concepts like REITs, but that's not ownership in the actual asset. Um, But it's still a a model that's based on cash flow. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can put your money to work for you in a way that actually creates financial freedom and builds wealth versus this just emotional decision that's really dis- destroying wealth. It's putting yourself, it's cr- you're becoming a debt surf. I think it can also put you at risk. I mean, if I really think about, I mean, in my career in a private practice where I only earn money if I'm working, if something did happen to me, you know, and all, everything I earned, everything I worked so hard for was in a down payment that I put into a house. And then I've got this monthly payment. If something happened, I couldn't work for five or six months. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's more than just an emotional decision. It becomes a risk. And that is something I thought about afterwards, which is, you know, could be disastrous. Very disastrous. <clears throat> so it's not even just like a little bit of a bad decision. I mean, it could be bad. Yeah, now you're, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, and that ultimately is your your liquidity it's your cushion mm-hmm. um should there be something to happen or even if you needed to make a pivot with your business right yeah that makes sense all right well you've pivoted my decision to some extent away from the emotional side well if anything it's just now you know where to focus your energy which is just re- yeah. researching other markets and I have been to some degree. It's just this one thing pops up and all it takes is this very emotional moment. Um, and you thing, can make really big decisions. Yeah, the other the other aspect to it is it's hard when you look at, whether it's Hawaii and other markets, it's hard when you, you look at what the end result would be if you bought an investment. And again, it's, it's 
kind of short-sighted thinking, but um, if you're going to go put your savings into something and it's going to produce, uh, I'm just making something up, but $300 a month of cash flow, most people just scoff at that and be like, that's a waste of my time. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I get that. And one of the things for me that I'm very excited about and I encourage people to look into and I, you know, help and coach people get started with is vacation rentals. Another really poorly executed decision in Hawaii. Um, you had three decades to figure this out mm-hmm. and you wait until it's gotten so bad. Now you punish the dog for peeing on the carpet after you let him pee on the carpet for its entire life. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this is classic bad policy response. Wait, wait, wait. And then respond by being, you know, your reactions overarching. You haven't thought it out. Um, and there's a lot of people who are literally paying their taxes. I have neighbors that are literally doing it so they can pay their taxes. Mm-hmm. And, and now you just create this prevailing sweep of like, no, now it's just nobody can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know what? It was always illegal. And you, you ignored it for, for three decades. Um, and I think Hawaii really shot itself in the foot with that. Again, because you need, you just need an investor base. When the investor base doesn't want to be here, you've got a problem. It's, it's going to create an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're looking in places, this is why I like Airbnb and vacation rentals, where you're looking at a market where, eh, do I really care about 300 bucks a month? Does it get me excited? No, so maybe you don't pull the trigger and you're out there looking for a property that's producing more income and then you just stall, you stall, you stall, and then you never really right. get started as an investor. Whereas if now with you know vacation rentals, the system is, is um, really relatively easy to get started with. That's why it blew up and suddenly became a problem in a, in a lot of markets, not just Hawaii, um, because any, any monkey can do an Airbnb now. But you're, you're easily 3Xing your cash flow. So it was nothing to really scoff at is now suddenly, you know, a thousand bucks a month. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, I'll take it, mm-hmm. right? And if you're getting that on a property in, in, in a market that maybe cost you 300000 or less, right. very quickly, you're paying that sucker off. Yeah. <clears throat> and that that's that's the con- for me that's the combination here's the real core message i have for people a we're going into recession this is going to be an ugly one you know the first one it was the banks it was the private sector the sovereign governments took a lot of that bad debt on their balance sheet now the sovereign governments are all broke as are the corporates um so those are the two entities that very likely are going to go bust when you start having countries go broke um, I mean, it, it's in unison, right? Like simultaneously, that's some scary stuff. Um, and I think that's, there's a lot of unpredictability that's going to come from that. But whatever re- type of recession we have, there's go, the, the party's over, right? There's going to be a bit of pain. Is it going to be short? Is it going to be long lived? Irrelevant. Bottom line is hard times are coming. You need to be focused on cash flow. Cash flow is how you get through recession. It's that passive income that sustains you through hard times. You get hurt at work, cash flow. There's an economic contraction, cash flow, right? You lose your job, 
cash flow. That passive income gets you through that. The investments get you through that, right? Smart investing gets you through that. And then the last piece of that is 3X that shit with vacation rentals while that party's still lasting. Because I think you're going to continually see bad policy decisions from a lot of markets. Here's something I forgot to mention. I think this is, for me, the big kicker. If you believe in that, that idea that you, you buy real estate and wait, or when you buy real estate, you know, you'll get these capital gains or it's going to appreciate. If you, if you don't want to do your own research to see how that's ultimately not true, you don't have to do your own research. Someone else did 350 years of it. But if you want to believe that, fine, believe it. You're going to get that same benefit from an investment property. So any, anything that you would use as a so-called logical or pragmatic argument for buying a primary residence mm-hmm. is a benefit you're going to get from an investment property. Right. I mean, it makes sense to me. It's nonsense. Yeah, but it's so easy to do. I mean, your social circle, your family, everybody around you is telling you the same thing. They're doing the same thing. Even if you're educated and you listen to things and you yeah. read it's about what pressures are right in front of you. And what I say to that is, anyone who's giving you that advice, how successful are they? How financially... It's hard to judge that when you, you see the outside. I get that. Too. You know, you yeah. don't see their portfolio. I guess my point is, if you look at anybody who's um, a billionaire, you know, really like the tycoons, the wealthy, mm-hmm. wealthy, it's not, you know nitpick the average person that, oh, we got to really look at their balance sheet to determine. You know when something's rolling in it when they have their own plane. But your average person, that's not the goal. I'm not saying that's the goal. I'm saying you look at how they got there. Right. The process. I understand. Yeah. The process wasn't buying a house and keeping up with the Joneses. It was buying assets. That's all. And that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I just don't think it's the majority way of thinking. I mean, I'm just giving you an example of the majority way of thinking, which is what I'm exposed to, you know, just looking at the people around you, what they have, what it looks like, and that being well, the pressure. Totally. Look at the majority of, of the country. That's mm-hmm. it's why banking and, and mortgage finance and real estate is, is a huge part of the economy now. I think it's like 30%. It's absurd. Yeah. It's basically replaced the entire manufacturing sector. We've more or less have completely financialized our economy. So what happens when the financialization of our economy disappears? Scary. It is scary. And that's... Um, Why are you moving to Chile? Well, it's, it's also something I think is funny that a lot of people in the real estate industry are fascinated by... Um, maybe it's ignorance, maybe it's, it's, um, maybe it's denial, but... Like you're, I'm I'm in that business, right? And I'm always looking at it, like what what is my um, lifeline to extinction? Like we're going to be the dodo bird, right? It's funny because it's like, well, yeah, obviously there's no taxis anymore. Well, yeah, obviously you know retail stores are out of business. Well, in a couple years, everyone's gonna be like, well, obviously there's no realtors anymore. loan officers anymore it's like dude it's coming like really ask yourself what kind of value are you providing 
be serious. Like get out of your own ego and be like, oh, I'm helping people, you know, live their dream and giving them peace of mind. And seriously, shut up for a second and really ask yourself the service you think you're providing. Are you really providing a value that's irreplaceable? Do you have a unique service or selling proposition? Do you have a USP? Like what makes you irreplaceable? Be honest with yourself. If you can't really answer that question, you should be afraid mm-hmm. because you're, you're, when you have, number one, contraction in that marketplace, the fringe falls off. The, the, the top 10% survives because they're really good at what they do and they have you know, a, a bigger book of business. But beyond that, this isn't just like, oh, you know, times are tough and every time there's a contraction, yeah, some of the people, they move on to other things. But you're, you're going to have consolidation and you're going to have disruption. You already have it. Like the biggest companies that right now, which I think is hysterical, um, the biggest companies where most real estate salespeople are getting leads, the Zillows, the Redfins, mm-hmm. they're working to completely eliminate you, mm-hmm. right? Like you're buying their leads while they're at the same time in the process of literally buying the homes themselves, Their whole goal is to basically replace you, buy the asset, list it, basically do an arbitrage, you know, buy it below or, you know, be there for the the quick opportunity, close the deal quickly for the the seller and then sell it to the buyer quickly on the other side for a spread. And if they don't, if they have the calculations correct, then it becomes a a property that that they rent. So now they're producing cash flow. Mm-hmm. on their capital. Oh, that's an interesting thought. And they're already doing it. And they're, they're referred to the, the term as I buyers. I wonder if my realtor hates Zillow. Well, I mean, it's, again, it's just the, it's, it's the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's the distribution of information, right? It's once the data is free, once anyone can access the information, you got to really, reevaluate where where your service or mm-hmm. value lies. Back in the day, you used to have, you know, you used to be the the info source. Now that that data is is public. Right. So what you're providing some sort of transactional consultation, dude, get over it. Yeah. The the transaction and the process is not that difficult and it's easily automatable with the AI technology that's out there. Um, the only reason it hasn't completely disrupted the market already is typically the compliance risk because all the regulation that goes on all of a sudden you know you're creating some digital buying system and someone doesn't check the box right and they have a bad day and feel like i wasn't represented and i didn't know i was doing this and Mm -hmm. but i think you know once you start to create a a more um just a universal process that's what will happen is you'll have these Big players will come in and um, like the Zillows and start to establish this new paradigm. Yeah, makes sense. And then the regulators will step in and then you'll create this standardized digital process. And behind all of that, you've got this massive movement with blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And so you have all these entities that are that are doing this um, independently verified digital ledgers where you don't need title companies anymore. Mm-hmm. Literally, the entire industry, which is now close to 30% of the economy, even in a healthy economy, is going to be replaced. 
Um, so, yeah, there's, to me, this, this is the thing that um, keeps me up at night and also at the same time gets me excited because there's opportunity there when you start to connect the dots of potentially where things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the average person, I think that's also opportunity because it's deflationary. You're, you're not, there's no reason for you to be paying 3% commission. There's none. Yeah. It's absurd. And, and the premiums and, and fees that are paid on capital is absurd as well. You know, as far as loan officer commissions and lender fees and deflation has a great way of, of reducing those costs for consumers. Think about what you pay for a computer now. So yeah. it, it, it's a welcomed change, but it's, it's going to come with a lot of pain. Um, and that's, that's industry speaking, but as far as what started the conversation, I would like to see people be patient in making decisions that were going to set them up for the future. There's no reason for them to be short-sighted and other people feeding into that emotional short-sightedness just so they can make a check. Yeah. Well, it's good that um, I talked to you today and things didn't work out yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, you say that now. <laughs> Until I make an offer tomorrow. <laughs> right. No, no, it's been good to talk to you, and it makes sense. I mean, these are some of the things that I knew, but, again, I think it's just easy for them to kind of slip from your mind, and they feel harder than they have to. They just It feels like there's this big barrier there when you're working all day, and you come home, and, you know, it's like... It is. It's just another thing you have to think about. House is hot. You want to put in split AC, but it's not your home and your landlord won't do it. <laughs> Thankfully, I have central AC. That's that's a must. But yeah, I mean, just the daily life grind and the things that get in the way. Um, and then the last thing on your mind is maybe I'll buy a house in Oregon and rent it out to somebody. But I do think it's important. And <clears throat> when you lay it out, it makes sense in the long run. As long as you can have both, you can still have that emotional part of it and have some security, yeah, I think uh, it's just awesome. in a different way. Well, I also think this, like, the two-bedroom condo is not your dream home. So, so let's pull that off off the table, right? Like, the starter home. Stop with that. Mm-hmm. Like that. That's you're not going to build. No one's built wealth that way. You have the starter investment property. Right. Not going to your first day out go buy a eighty unit multifamily, but you still focus on the core premise, which is cash flow. Yeah. And if literally if it's paying you fifty dollars a month, it's better than it costing you two thousand a month. No, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, you have to reserve some for things breaking and stuff going wrong, but yeah, I think it's headed in the right direction. And. Again, for, for people in the industry, I wish they you know, would adhere to this for their own sake too because someone like you, you could go out there and buy this home in Kailua and that's it. You're done, right? Mm-hmm. Or anyone who's in the position that they think they want to go buy a house, maybe they, they buy another one in the future. Mm-hmm. Or you work with someone who has the potential to be an investor and most likely – Every 18 months, they're buying another property. Yeah. Because the cash flow will have rejuvenated their their down payment, and they can go do it again. Yeah. 
It's a lot to think about, John. <laughs>